What do you think will happen when Jesus returns? What do you want him to do? I asked the question a couple years ago, and some kid was in the audience, and he shouted out, Take me to Toys R Us. <laughs> I, had another, I had another answer in mind, but that happens, you know, when you have different ages. Those are not the same question. What do you think will happen when Jesus returns, and what do you want him to do are slightly different. Sometimes they're the same, but not always. The first one, what do you think will happen, speaks of your expectations. And you got them from somewhere, probably. You read something, you were taught something, something was baked into you as a young person, and you carry those expectations with you. So when you think about Jesus' return at the end of time, uh, these pictures, images come to your mind. But when I ask, uh, what do you want him to do? That speaks more of your hopes than your expectations. Uh, And that sometimes is born just out of our own longings, our deficiencies. It comes from our experiences, things that we've seen and it didn't happen. And so we want Jesus to come and, and fix that. Most of the time, I would think these are pretty similar. What we think he'll do and, and what we want to happen are pretty close. But on occasion, they're different. And when they're different, we have to be careful that we, I'll, be, I'll slow it down so you can get it. We, when they're different, we have to be careful that we do not start with our hopes and build our expectations around that. We have to be careful that we lead with our expectations. Because sometimes you can hope for something that you don't expect to happen. Like me, I hope the Lions will win the Super Bowl this year. It's been a good free agency, that's all I can say. But I don't really expect that to happen this year. Next year, it's another matter, but... And, and there's times when, uh, when you can expect things to happen that you hope doesn't happen. I expect the market to correct itself because it's been going too fast, too sudden. But I hope it doesn't. <laughs> I hope it just keeps going because I think a lot of people win as long as the market's going up. So you have to be careful that you keep them together. And if they're separate, you always want to lead with your expectations. This morning, I hope not to mess with your hopes, because I probably can't do that. You've come by them honestly. As I say, you've lived a while, and you've gotten things that you've seen happen. And so when, when Jesus comes back, I think you have hopes of this or that. But if I can, I want to tinker with your expectations. I want to maybe get you to expect things that you might not expect when Jesus returns. This is the rub on Palm Sunday. I'm I'm pretty sure of this. If I'm reading the Gospels right, you guys, uh, Palm Sunday is not one event, it's three. And, and what we do is we spend a lot of a time and attention on the one event, and we don't talk as much about the other two. So what I want to do this morning is talk about all three events. The first event is the parade. It's when the children walking around, except back in those days, it wasn't just children. It was adults that were waving palm branches, too. I saw one child go by with a Just Do It Nike shirt on. They probably didn't have that back in those days either, but it was the same spirit. They were waving branches, and they were shouting, Hosanna, you know, Hosanna in the highest. And the word means salvation. And what they were doing, actually, is recreating Psalm 
118. In that psalm, Israel takes the psalm with it every year as they go toward the temple. Uh, it is led by a national leader, something of a symbol or a hero in Israel's eyes. Behind him is the crowd or the masses. And as they come toward the temple, the leader of the community demands that they open the temple gates to let him in. He wants to bring his people with him. So from Psalm 118, I put these verses on the screen, You'll, he, he shouts out, Open for me the gates of righteousness, and I will enter and give thanks to the Lord, for this is the gate through which the righteous may enter. I will give thanks for you answered me. You have become my salvation. That's the word Hosanna. This is the day that the Lord has made. And everyone says, let us rejoice and be glad in it as they go forward. This is the parade. Now, nobody knows for sure what Israel expected their Messiah to be. Because there wasn't just one definition of a Messiah in those days. Israel had as many versions of a Messiah as we have superheroes you know, and each one had sort of a different angle or a different edge or power. Uh, and the Messiah that Israel had was not really the Son of God, not in their mind. It was simply an anointed leader that would lead Israel into this time. So, so Israel had as their expectations in this triumphal entry many of the same expectations that you have for the second coming. Let me say it differently. What you think will happen in the second coming is what they thought would happen in the first coming. The leader would come back and he would present himself as the king of the world. And he would have behind him all of his faithful people. Now understand, Israel has just spent centuries moved to the margins. They've been dismissed and ignored, sometimes persecuted. They went from Egypt to Assyria to Babylon to Rome. I mean, there almost wasn't a generation alive that didn't know some kind of oppression and persecution. And so on Palm Sunday, what people lining the streets are waiting for is for the Messiah to come back and start this grand entry. He's going to go back to the city. He's going to say, fling open them gates, and all of God's people are going to be behind him. And they had a couple of expectations. Whatever the Messiah was, and as I say, there were literally dozens of versions there were two things that all versions had in common. One of them, he would do something to the temple because everyone before him had done something to the temple. Uh, David had envisioned the temple. Solomon had built the temple. Hezekiah cleansed the temple. Josiah cleansed the temple. Joshua, son of Jehozadak, cleansed the temple. Judas Maccabeus led a whole military through the temple to cleanse it and then set up a 100-year kind of dynasty inside the temple. So when the real Messiah comes back, he'll establish the temple as the center of the world. And the second thing he'll do is he'll finally make Israel the people that we expect them to be. Because see, we've been pushed to the curb for too long. But when the Messiah comes back, then all the world will know that we are God's chosen people. So they, with these two things in their mind, now with these two things in their mind, 
Israel stands alongside of the street as Jesus rides down the street or the road on a colt. This also fills prophecy in Zechariah. David rode into Jerusalem on a colt. And so when Israel sees him riding on a colt, they have all these expectations kind of burning in their mind. And they're thinking, this is the day. This is the, I live to see this. So the first scene is a parade. See, and this is the, really the only part that we sing about or talk about in churches on Palm Sunday. But this all happens probably before noon. What do you think will happen when Jesus comes back? What do you think will happen? The Bible says every eye will see him. The Bible says, when he appears, we will be like him, for we will see him as he is. The Bible says, the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, and with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of a trumpet, and the dead in Christ will rise first, and then everyone who is still alive will be caught up in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and we will be with the Lord forever. The Bible says, when he comes, every knee shall bow, and every tongue will confess. I add, whether it wants to or not, oh man, that Jesus Christ is Lord. I just say, I'm looking forward to this day. I really am. I know some of you aren't. You don't think you've lived long enough. You still think there's a party ahead of you. But when you live long enough and you've been moved to the curb and you've watched the church get piled on for things that are not the church's fault, you watch the faithful take the heat while the unfaithful pretty much do what they want, but it's always the faithful's fault. When you live long enough, you realize that this world is not a playground. It's a battleground. And you watch people banter over who is right about this or that. Don't you really long for a day when he will return and settle the argument? Don't you look forward to that? You won't have to sit there and defend him. You just step aside and say, you do it. We had enough. And he can speak for himself. And when he starts speaking, we will know in an instant that not all religions are the same after all. There is one Lord and one faith and one baptism. Doggone it, that's a good day. We don't talk enough about that because some of us aren't hungry enough. Our minds are in other places. Try to change the world for a while. And you will get hungry for a day when he will come and change it himself. And he will call the righteous forward. And the psalmist said they will shine like the noonday sun. <laughs> I, I can hear him now standing behind him saying, I told you. But this all happens before noon. 
See, it ain't over yet. What do you think will happen when Jesus comes back? You understand, everything you think will happen in the second coming, they thought would happen on Palm Sunday. It's exactly what they wanted him to do. But the scene suddenly moves from the parade in the Gospel of Luke to the Kidron Valley. And in the Kidron Valley, something happens that only Luke catches. It says, as Jesus comes riding down that familiar path on that colt and all of the expectations are still at a peak, he looks over the city and he starts to weep over it. In Jerusalem 13, Jesus said to Jerusalem, he said, Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who stone the prophets and you, you kill those who were sent to save you, how I would have gathered you under my arms like a hen gathers her chicks, but you would not. Then he said, Now your city is left to you desolate. You will not See me again until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Now he sits on a colt going into the city. And as he looks over the city and he realizes that he can't have the city, he starts to weep. This happens on Palm Sunday. What do you think will happen when Jesus comes back? You think he will come and judge the world? Do you think that your judgments are right? Or do you think he will come and weep over the city that he cannot have? I don't know what your visions of the second coming are, but I bet there is nowhere in your vision an image of a Messiah or a judge who weeps over a city. No, no, we have one who stands and just judges the city, some to the left and some to the right. But not in Luke. When Jesus comes, he weeps over the city. This tells us something about the character of God, doesn't it? You only weep when you want something and you cannot have it. You weep just as you're letting go of it. You weep because there is anger and sadness, and fear, and loss, all mixed together. You weep because you feel responsible for something, and you still can't get it. That probably isn't my image of the coming Messiah. No, no. He gets everything he wants, but not in Luke, not on Palm Sunday, not when Jesus comes. What do you think will happen when Jesus comes? Leave room in your vision for a Messiah that weeps and maybe a church that weeps with him. As I thought about this action this week, it occurred to me, some of us have lost the capacity to weep for the city that we live in. Some of us don't even think it's our city. We live, we, we go to school here, or we work here, or we shop here, and we have parts of our city that is our city, but not the whole city. 
Some of us have lost ourselves into activity trying to fix the city. Some of us have lost ourselves into complaining and blaming other people for the city. See, we haven't got there yet. We haven't gotten there until we feel responsible for a city that we cannot have, that we cannot save. And then that moment where your anger and your fear and your loss and sadness all mixed together, just before you have to let it go, is when you start to weep. I thought this week I haven't wept for the city in more than two years. That's a long time. We were telling stories about uh, this family or that woman or this, uh, this business or that community, and it was one story after another, and they were just piling on top of another. And I started out, you know, complaining about it. And you know how you have to find a culprit. Who's responsible for this? And it started out that way until we got to the story about a child that came to school one weekend all bright-eyed because he was going to be adopted by a family. Oh, man, he was talking about it. He was excited. It was the first time he was really engaged with the teacher. And he found out on Monday when he came back that the family adopted his two siblings, but they did not adopt him. They couldn't take on a third one, they said, at least not one that had that many issues. And while there's a part of me that gets this, there is a loss in that. And that was when I lost it. I guess what I'm asking you right now is, when is the last time that you wept over a city? You say, I'm a student. This ain't my city. Then your city. Where do you live? Where do you live? When have you felt responsible for something you could not have? When were you angry and then it melted into sorrow? And you didn't know what to do, so you just lost it. You didn't quit. You just lost it. Church, part of Palm Sunday is the call for the church to remember that Jesus is coming back to the city. I can't wait. But somewhere in the middle of the afternoon is that same Messiah weeping over the city he came to and he cannot have. And something inside me says, I can't go any further until I just ask you, have you done that? Or did you one time? And then it got hurt so many times and so frustrated. You decided distance. An emotional layer of distance was the only way to survive it. So Jesus leaves the valley and he goes up into the temple. Yeah, when you read uh, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, I, see, I missed this. I thought the road to Jerusalem ended in Jerusalem. It doesn't. It ends in the temple, which is at the front end of Jerusalem. 
So this whole journey into Jerusalem is not really only about the city, it's about the temple. And it's almost as if Jesus realizes the reason the city is stuck is because the temple is broken. You see, this is where everything got turned upside down for me because I was sure that one of the things that would happen when Jesus came back was he would, he would judge the city and show sympathy for the temple. But that's not what he does. What he does is show sympathy for the city and he judges the temple. Mark says when he gets into the temple, he notices that people are exchanging money. They're selling doves. They're bringing in their trinkets into the temple area to sell it. Nobody knows for sure what's happening here, but the idea is that when you came to the temple and you wanted to tithe, you couldn't tithe your money. You had to exchange the currency into a currency that the temple could use. And so you would change the money over into temple money. And that's where they were ripping them off. There's some idea that the poor could not afford a sacrifice. And so not being able to bring anything to the temple, they would have to buy their sacrifices in the temple. And so they were buying doves at inflated prices. They were taking advantage of people's poverty. They were ripping them off. They had booths or vendors that were moving along the side courts of the temple that were selling their gadgets or their wares or their trinkets, hoping to get people who come for one reason to come over maybe and shop. It'd be like adding stores to a church. And so when Jesus comes into the temple, he shuts down the exchange of money. He sh turns over the benches where they're selling doves. And he tells people who are selling their trinkets to stay out of the temple area. And he says to them, my house will be a house of prayer. In Mark, he says, prayer for all nations. He says, but you guys have made it a den of robbers. So, so when Jesus comes into the city, he shows sympathy for the city. And then he judges the temple. I expected something else. Let me tell you some stories. Can I tell you stories? You like stories. You know these stories. Here's one. Once there was, uh, once there was a master uh, who owned a really big house and he went away on a wedding. He had to go and watch somebody get married and he said to his servants, when I come back, um, uh, I want to see my house in order. Well, see, sometimes when the big guy goes away, the servants will think, hey, man, we don't have a boss. Let's goof around. But not these servants. While the master was away from his home, the servants got really particular. They started to clean things up and they fixed things and they were really conscientious about taking care of the master's stuff. And so when the master came back and he saw what the servants were doing, he said, man, this looks ridiculously good. And he himself put on a servant's robe. 
And he sat down at the table and he started to serve. The master, that is, he was actually serving the servants. That's the end of that story. What'd you think? That sounds a lot like Luke chapter 12. There's another story. It's about a guy who owns a big old ranch, got a big old house. He decides to have a banquet. So he says to his chief servant, I want you to go out and here's the list of people, all my friends that I want to come to the banquet. And he says, go, go ask them to be here. Tell them supper's ready. The servant goes out and he talks to all these people. And the first guy says, I can't come to this banquet. Man, I just bought some land. I got to deal with my property. The second guy says, man, I'd love to come. Dude, I just bought a truck. Well, actually, it was five yoke of oxen, but truck. He said, I just got a big old Ford F-250, man. I can't be going to some dinner. And the third one said, I just got married. Man, I'm going on a honeymoon. And so the servant came back and he talked to this owner of the house and he said to him you know none of these people on your list actually want to come to your dinner and when the owner of the house heard this he got angry so he said to the servant then I want you to go out and I want you to find people that are poor and blind and lame and crippled and I want you to tell them that they can come eat at my table and guess what people they all wanted to come so the servant went out and he asked a whole bunch of people that you would never ask to come and eat at the master's table. And when he looked at the table, it was only half full. So he said to the owner of the house, man, you still got room. And the owner said, then don't start dinner yet. I want you to go out to the country roads and to the alleys of the streets. Translated that means into the little burgs where no Jews live, pure Gentiles. Pure half-breeds, I want you to find them and tell them they can eat at my table. And by the end of the story, the master sits at the table and his table is full, but it don't have any of these people on the invite list. No, no, it is full of people you'd never invite, and they're enjoying the master's meal. <laughs> That's a great story. And the moral to it is, it's never the people you think it is. It's always somebody else. And if you grew up in church as I did, that ought to scare the life out of you. You understand, you grew up on the first list. That don't mean you can't come. It just means your religion can get in the way of genuine desire. There's another story. It's about a guy that had two sons. And one son came to him one day and he said, Dad, I'm sick of being around this house. I want you to give me my inheritance. And he went off and he spent the inheritance on parties and on prostitutes and one day he ran out of money and, and he said to himself, this is ridiculous because my father is back at the house and, and he has servants that are eating better than I am. Here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to get up. I'm going to go back to my father. Have you heard this story? 
Can I finish it anyway? I'm going to go back and tell my dad, I'm not worthy to be a son. I get that. But if you'll just let me be a servant. So he starts heading back to the home. And his dad must have been somewhere on the porch or something because he looked up the path and he saw the boy coming. And when he saw him coming, he recognized the walk. He must have seen the look or something. And, and he did what old men never do. They pick, he picked up his robe and he started to run. Old men never ran in those days. It was a sign of indignity. But he didn't care about that. He ran like crazy until he found the boy and he threw his arms around him. And before anybody could say anything, he said... Go get the ring, man. Get the family signet ring. Put it on his finger. Go get the robe, the one that only sons wear. Give me sandals. Slaves can't wear those. And let them wear the sandals. And go kill a big old fat cow. We're going to have ourselves a party because my son who was lost has come home. Meanwhile, there was another boy out in the field. He watching this whole thing. He heard all the partying going on, and the more he heard, the madder he got. And he thought to himself, this is ridiculous. I have done nothing but obey my entire life. See, that's just his problem. He said, I've done nothing but obey my entire life. I've never once disobeyed my father, even if I didn't like it. And he never once gave me a signet ring, never gave me the sandals or killed a big fat cow for me. So the father went out into the field and said, can't you understand your brother? And the old boy said, that son of yours. You hear the difference in the language? The father says, come and eat. And the brother can't do it. Helmut Felix writes, in an odd twist of fate at the end of the story, it's the older brother, not the prodigal, who is the real prodigal. Stuck with obedience his entire life, chafing at compassion the moment he sees it, writes Felix, he himself goes off to a faraway country from which there is no return. Let me tell you another one. Two guys, I have a point, relax. <laughs> These are all in Luke. Two guys go into the temple one day. They're going to pray. One of them is a Pharisee and one of them is a tax collector. I think I told you two weeks ago a tax collector is not simply a sinner. They were tied with sinners, but they were worse than sinners. Tax collectors were the first century's version of a pimp or a drug dealer or a pedophile. It was public enemy number one. They were cheaters, liars. That he was in the temple itself is shocking because often they weren't allowed in. So they go into the temple one day to pray. Pharisee goes into the temple and he, he looks over and sees the tax collector. And then he looks back towards the holy place and he said, God, I thank you <laughs> that I am not like one of him. 
He says, because I fast twice a week and I tithe a tenth of my income. I told the first service, I wish we had more Pharisees. <laughs> At least during the offering. public enemy number one is sitting over to the side by himself and he cannot even raise his eyes. He is so overcome with his own depravity. He cannot even raise his eyes. He just said, God be merciful to me, a sinner. And here's the moral to that story. God is attracted to need. God cannot resist Genuine need. And the longer you are religious, the less you need. You lose touch of your own need, not realizing that this does not make you holy. It cuts you off from the temple. I got one more story. Then I'll make my point. You'll like it, I hope. There was an owner of a big old house, and he was going to go to a faraway country where they were going to make him king. He's going to come back king. Just before he went, he decided to call in his servants and hand out his money. He said, I can't use this money while I'm gone, so I need you to use it for me. Now, here's what he said in so many words. He said, I want you to invest this money in the way that I would invest it. The way Kenneth Bailey translates it is, engage this money in the business that I'm engaged in. I'm going away. So after they made him king, the big man came home. And when he came home, he called the servants together. And he started to weigh what they did. Two of them had handled the money well. The third one had buried it out of fear. And for their actions, the master elevated the first two. And he cut the third one off. And the moral of that story is, what you do with the master's Stuff matters. So when you ask yourself what Jesus is doing on Palm Sunday, when he cleanses the temple, he's actually opening up the gates. You see, over time in any organization, churches included, college church is 122 years old. That's older than some of you. <laughs> over time, traditions and systems and structures can start to grow up around an organization in order to protect the organization. So while we're busy trying to build things that will make us sustainable, those things become walls that keep people out. You see, I think the reason Jesus told 
all five of the stories I just mentioned is because they had a theme in common. There is a day when the master is coming home. So Palm Sunday, it turns out, is not simply about a king who is coming to the city. It's about a master who is coming back home. And that's why he goes straight into the temple and calls it my house. So what do you think will happen when Jesus returns? What will happen when the master comes home? Here's what I think happens. When the master comes home, the temple gets judged. And this is a good thing. You shouldn't be afraid of this, church. This is a good thing. We should welcome this because even though we want so much to reach the world, we realize that things build up around us that make it hard for the world to get in. So the best thing we can hope for is for Jesus to come back and start cleansing the layers that protect the wrong people and taking down the walls that don't let other people in. Because on Palm Sunday, when the master comes home, the church will be judged. And when the master comes home, the poor will eat. And when the master comes home, the prodigal is welcome and doesn't feel like he is on probation for a couple of years. And when the master comes home, public enemy number one can come into the temple, the worst of us, and feel that our prayers get heard. And when the master comes home, we find out who is and is not really using the master's stuff in the master's business. I long for the master to come home. I don't like the discipline. I won't like the cleansing, but I will love what it produces.